Good morning. You guys more awake than first service? A little bit. Okay, good. Glad to hear that. My name is John McCormick. I am the leader of Renovation New here at Renovation Church, which is our summer theology classes, which are only six months away, so get excited. It's going to be great. Happy New Year's. Glad you're here with us. Glad you're here to celebrate the brand new year, and also hope you had a great Christmas time with your family celebrating the birth of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you do this, but 40% of Americans have been thinking about what their New Year's resolutions will be. Could be something they want to start doing, maybe something they want to stop doing. Uh, if they're anything like me, they've told themselves they're going to eat a salad every day for lunch for the rest of the year because they got to eat right and get in shape. <coughs> that won't last. Uh, or maybe they've admitted to themselves, you know, they should start using that gym membership they've been paying for for a long time and haven't been in a while, right? That also tends to happen. Or maybe they're thinking about doing something fun. They want to travel more. Or maybe they want to do something new and exciting like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane or something. Um, but people make resolutions, right, because they want to make something better in their lives. We want to make our lives better. We want to fix that fill-in-the-blank thing in our lives this year. And, you know, sometimes they do help us make really important changes. Uh, but, <laughs> and you probably know where I'm going to go with this, uh, people who study such things say that we make our resolutions and then really quickly forget or abandon them. A company called Strava, which has an exercise tracking app, did a study in 2019 of over 98 million activities that were logged into their app. And according to their research over the course of that year, the average American gives up their exercise-related New Year's resolutions on January 19th, which they've affectionately named Quitter's Day. So happy Quitter's Day in a few weeks. It'll be great. Other studies suggest that we give up, 30% of us will give up by the first week of January, and that over 50% will give up by the time February starts. And in the end, only 10% approximately, will actually keep their resolution for the entire year. That's pretty crazy numbers for something that 40 million people are going to do every single year. Just keep those stats in the back of your mind this morning, and we'll come back to them in a little bit. If you're new with us, over the last few weeks, we've been uh, going through the book of Colossians as a church. In September, I'm sorry, in October and November, we covered chapter 1 and chapter 2. We took a short break for a series on the names of God, and now we're back into Colossians again today, starting in chapter 3. But before we jump in, I want to give you a quick summary of what happened in the first two chapters. And I'd also strongly encourage you to go back, if you didn't hear the messages on chapter 1 and 2, and go watch them on the website or on the app, because the context is going to be really helpful going through the rest of the book. So, chapter one, we see Paul talk about the faith of the Colossians. They're trusting in God, they're following Jesus, it's great. Their faith has been a blessing and an encouragement to others. And he also spends a little bit of time talking about how they know that Jesus has authority over the earth. In chapter two, Paul talks about how we should live our lives following Jesus and spends some time contradicting some false beliefs and false doctrines that some human teachers have been spreading in the city of Colossae. Paul tells the Colossians that these teachings are really not beneficial. They don't help Christians resist temptation, which is what these teachers were saying that their teachings could do. So he's saying that's not really accurate. Now, these points are all really important because this book is a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and it's meant to be read as a whole. So what came before is going to inform where we're going to go. And we'll see in chapter 3 that Paul is really going to shift gears into the rest of the book and what we're calling the roadmap for the resurrected, talking about how we should really live our lives. So that brings us today to chapter 3. I really want you to follow along with me today. So if you have your Bible, grab it. We're in Colossians 3. There's one under the chair in front of you or under your chair in the front row. Uh, on, in that Bible, under the pews, we're going to be on page 805. I'm actually going to cheat and go back one verse at the end of chapter 2 just to give us a little context, and then we'll get started. So on page 805 in the Bible under the pew, right at the bottom, look for the little number 23. So starting Colossians 2, 23. So he's talking about the, the false teachers here. He says, Such regulations... 
have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So we finished up chapter 2, right? Paul's saying, hey, these false teachers, their rules and regulations, they're not going to cut it for you. They're not going to help you follow Jesus. They're not going to be a benefit. He points out that bad theology and says, don't do that. And the nice thing is he doesn't just say, don't do that and move on. He says, don't do that. Here's my alternative. So his alternative to what the false teachers are saying is that we are instead supposed to set our hearts and our minds to follow Jesus, to among things above. <clears throat> but what on earth does setting your heart and mind actually mean, right? Like those phrases are probably not super familiar to you because we don't really use them anymore. But you might be familiar with something like, I have my heart set on it, right? You really, really want something. So setting your heart is, I really want something. Or instead of saying, set your mind, you might say, I can't stop thinking about it, or I can't take my mind off of it, right? So setting your mind just means you're thinking about something all the time. It's always on your mind. And what we see Paul saying here is that we are to desire and think about these things above. Well, he's not talking about things literally above, like we're not supposed to think about the ceiling, right? That would be really weird. Instead, he's using this idea of above that we actually see Jesus use in the book of John. So let's look at two examples. I'll throw them up on the screen for you. First one is John 8, 23. So Jesus is talking, and he says, He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Here's another one, John 19, 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So this idea of things above is talking about heaven and heavenly things and talking about God who dwells there. The opposite of things above would be earthly things, right? It's things that the world loves like money and power, alcohol, sex, drugs, all that, all that kind of stuff. Now, a few years ago, I did a message here at Renovation Church called Eyes on the Prize, where I talked a lot about heaven. And one of the big themes was how we have to set our eyes on heaven, where we'll be with Jesus someday. Like someone running in a race, you have to be thinking and focused on your goal, or you're going to end up like wandering off into the middle of the race, and you're not going to finish. You're not going to complete the race. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to help us with here. He says we should really want to be in heaven with our king. We should spend a lot of time thinking about Jesus and our home with him to help us win that race. Paul's not just giving us like, you should do this though. He's going to give us reasons why. Why should we do this? Why do we care? And it's right at the beginning of verse 1, right? It says, you have been raised with Christ. Because we've been given new life with Jesus, we are to set our hearts and minds on the things above. We desire heaven, we're supposed to desire heaven because of what Jesus has done. Not like the small side desire that you kind of think about sometimes. We're talking about like the main primary big desire in your life is to want those things. And Paul just spent the last two chapters establishing how awesome and amazing and powerful Jesus is to give us reasons why we would want to do that. Why would we want to want him? Because of all the reasons Paul's already given us. But to give you a few quickly as reminders, he tells us that we are free from death and sin because of what Jesus has done. He tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. He says that Jesus who died for us single-handedly holds the universe together by a thought. That's how powerful he is. And Paul wants us to remember that based on these things, when we believe in Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. It means two things for us, right? The sustainer of the universe wants to spend time with you. Whoa, 
Number two, he is making a place for you in heaven where you will be with him someday forever. That's incredible. That should make your heart light up like the 4th of July, right? That's amazing. We are no longer dead, friends. We are made alive for eternity with Jesus. That's so good. The great theologian and pastor, Charles Spurgeon, had an amazing metaphor for this transition from being dead to being made alive that Paul is talking about here and why it should make us really want to focus on the things above. Here's his example. He says, a dead person is laid to rest in a crypt, right? They're in the crypt, and they don't really care about the fact that they're in a crypt because, well, they're dead, right? They don't, they don't care. But if that person suddenly came to life and woke up inside of a crypt, they'd be freaking out. Oh my gosh, everything around me is dead. I'm terrified. I need to get out of here. Every single thought would be focused on, get me out of this place. Every single desire in their heart would be just one, get me out of here. They are completely focused on finding something alive and getting away from the dead things around them. And friends, when we don't know Jesus, we are the dead person in the crypt. We are dead in our sins, and we don't know any different from what we see around us in the world. We can't tell a difference. We're content with the temporary lackluster offerings the world has to offer because... What else is there, right? But when we accept Jesus' gift and start to follow him, suddenly the things we've been wanting and desiring, the things we were okay with before, are shown to be what they really are. Empty, lifeless tombs. And having had that realization, Paul is telling us we should leave those things behind and instead seek the things which are found above, where we can find joy and hope and purpose and freedom, and the list goes on and on with how amazing those things are, you think we would never need reminding about them to think and desire them, right? And yet here is Paul writing this letter, and two chapters ago he was just telling them how great their faith was and how they were so awesome. I mean, are they doing a good job or are they not? Paul's told them, I'm proud of you, I'm proud of your faith, but he knows they're human. And humans are forgetful, humans need reminders, and we, don't, we haven't escaped our sinfulness completely when we believe in Jesus. It's not gone. Our sin is constantly, even when we're believers, trying to get us to focus on the things of this world. It's trying to get us to stop doing what God wants us to do and instead do what it wants to do. It tells us that we should just get home from work, collapse on the couch, and just zone out to our favorite show. That we should just go to the store and buy that thing we've been wanting because, man, we just deserve it. We should go give up on that relationship because, frankly, it's just too exhausting. Can't deal with it. And that leads us to the question, what do you think about constantly? What is your heart set on? Is it on heaven? On the amazing Savior Jesus and what he's done? On God the Father who created everything by the word of his power? On the Holy Spirit with through some crazy impossibility? Is God himself living within us? Truthfully, I think we can all say the answer to that is sometimes no. And maybe in your life it's more than just sometimes right now. I want you to ask yourself, honestly, these questions right now. What fills your thoughts all the time? What do you lay awake at night unable to sleep because you want so badly? Is it to be home in heaven? To know Jesus more today than you did yesterday? I hope those are our thoughts and desires. 
But it's okay to be honest and say, no, because we're not perfect. And as humans, we are easily distracted from the things above by the earthly thing around us. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all earthly things are bad. There's lots of good things. But Paul tells us they're not meant to be our main focus. They're not our primary goal. Now, I don't know how you answered those questions specifically, but my encouragement to you is this week, listen to Paul and actively set your hearts and minds on our king and on heaven where we'll be with him forever. I do want to take a few minutes and highlight one really prevalent desire that's in our culture right now that people are just completely focused on. As I was preparing for this message, God just kept bringing me back to the topic of careers over and over. And I think this is a huge stumbling block for so many Christians. As Americans, we're basically taught from birth that our careers are our identity, right? I submit for your consideration two phrases. The first is, what do you do? And the second is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? We hear these all the time. The first questions we ask people, we don't know, and, and we ask children. And inherent in both questions is the idea that what you do, what your career is, is who you are. But should we be defined by the job that we have that day? Does it really matter if we're a secretary or an accountant or a manager or an executive? I mean, we even give people important sounding names like, I don't know, executive and president and chief, right? But it makes it seem like those people are better or more important or have more value than us just based on a job title. And our culture doesn't help because it's constantly reinforcing these people, saying these are the people that make something of themselves. You know, they have lots of money, they're happy, they're changing the world. If we're honest, are they happy? Is setting your heart and mind on a career going to make you happy? No. So often I hear from people in house groups or from my students in Renovation U, they'll come up to me and say, man, I'm really trying to get this raise. I'm really trying to get this promotion. And I follow up with the question, why? Which seems like an odd question and it confuses people. And I usually get an answer of like, well, I wanna make more money. Or, you know, I need to get the, I, I'm finally going to get the recognition that I deserve. Or, you know, my company doesn't really value me enough. But once you have that next promotion, what's next? Well, the next promotion, of course. But then what's after that? When is it ever going to be enough? As Christians, we are supposed to focus on the things above. The Bible is telling us to focus on those things. God may plan for you to be promoted. Or he may not. Either way, we can still worship him and find contentment in him. And if you find your value in your job and not in Jesus, what happens when you lose your job, right? Setting your heart on money or career success is not going to make you happy. Instead, it will put you into the eternal rat race of the next promotion, the next job, more money. And culture is not helping because everybody around us is obsessed with these things. But friends, Paul is so clear that we are not to focus on them. Now, I'm not saying taking a new job or taking a promotion is a bad thing. In fact, if God is calling you to it, if you're focused on him and he puts you there, it can put you in a place to do a tremendous amount of good as a believer. But the next time you start to think that the goal itself is the next promotion or more money, stop. And instead, ask God and say, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? I'll be honest with you guys. I fell into this career trap for a long time, and it's left me with scars. When I finally stepped back and I asked God, what do you want me to do? He said, you know that IT job you have? I'm going to send you to a lower paying but less stressful IT job. And it hurt my pride at first because it seemed like a step 
backwards, right? That's what culture would tell you, backwards in my career. But you know what? I've loved my job. God knew exactly where I needed to be. And it's given me space to be more present with my family, more space to do more stuff at church, which I love doing. And I ask you the same question. Have you asked God what he wants you to do? Because friends, our value, our worth, comes from being loved by God, not by our job title. And that, that love of God, is what we should set our hearts and minds on. And you know what? Here's what's absolutely fascinating to me. God knew that we were going to have these kinds of struggles. This is not a surprise to God. He knew the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that they, and we by consequence, would start fighting a losing battle. A desperate battle to find joy and meaning and purpose from anything in the world around us. And the irony is our sinfulness blinds us to the only thing, the only person that could actually satisfy us. And God, in his great mercy and love, sent his son Jesus to this earth to die on a cross so you could have a chance to see him. A chance to see that he is so much better than anything this world can offer. Paul is saying there are good things in this world. He just spent chapter 2 telling us that the false teachers that were saying, get rid of everything, treat your body harshly, they're wrong. There are good things. But he knows that our focus What directs our thoughts and our hearts changes when we believe in Jesus. Look at the passage again. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. It's right here. It says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul is telling us that when we believe in Jesus, we die to our old lives. All the things we were chasing, our desires, our sinful impulses, we're dead to them. They don't rule over us in the same way they did before. Paul goes so far as to say, Christ is now your life. He's not a part of your life. He's not important to your life. He is your life. 100% of your life should be about Jesus. Check this out. This is how Paul describes his own life in Philippians 1, 21. He says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. While he lives, Paul is living for and focused on Jesus. And when he dies, he gets to go home. He gets to go home to heaven to be with Jesus forever. That's the great reward for living a life in Jesus. Both ways, his heart is focused, laser focused on the things above. Paul is the model to us of how we should approach our own lives. As Christians, our life is meant to be centered on Jesus. Our goal, our pursuit, our aim is to love, follow, and imitate Christ. But how could we possibly do that if our hearts and minds are set on something other than who he is and being with him forever? It's like a driver on the road, right? You're driving and you stop paying attention to where you're going and what happens? You end up halfway across the state going, where am I? Because you didn't focus. It's the same thing. We need to stay focused on where we are walking towards to stay walking towards Jesus. And the prize for doing that is there at the end of verse 4, right? What does it say? It says, we will appear with Jesus in glory. Those that seek and hold fast to the things above get to appear with Jesus. And we're not talking like an awkward Robin sidekick kind of thing. We're talking in glory with Jesus. That's amazing. We're not just going to be regular humans. We'll be glorified new humans that are so different that we can't even comprehend what they will be 
We will be with our Savior and our King for an eternity in paradise, joyful, free, forever. And therefore, Paul is saying this is your ultimate focus. This is the goal that you live for. It won't matter how far you advance in your career. It won't matter how good your kid is at sports in 500 years. But this will matter. You, your kids, and your family coming back on the clouds with Jesus in glory. Set your mind and your heart on those things. But if we're real about it, it's really hard in this life to not be distracted by the things of this world. I don't know if you know this, this symptom, but uh, shiny ball syndrome, kind of, a, kind of a big problem where every new thing is like, ooh, shiny, for a little while, but then it's not interesting anymore, right? What are we supposed to do in the midst of that? How can we keep our hearts and minds fixed on heaven when we're doing this all the time? Remember the New Year's resolutions we talked about? The same studies that show that most people just give up quickly also show that some people persist, right? Remember those 10%? What's different about those people? Interestingly enough, those same studies say that people who set goals for themselves are significantly more likely to keep their resolution because they keep thinking about, they keep wanting that goal, and so they're going to keep focused on it and get it done. It also says that people that try to keep their resolution in a group setting not only increase their chances of success, they often tend to exceed their goals. Friends, we're just like those people that are making their resolutions. We should resolve to set our hearts and minds on the things above, like Paul is telling us, to read our Bibles every single day, to pray and talk to God all the time. We should be in those 10% that live that way. And yet, how often are we the 90% that forget? Too many people hear about Jesus, and they're so excited, and they're saved, and they're amazed, and it's great. And then a few weeks, a few months, few years pass, and they stop following him. He stops being what they think about and what they desire, and like a New Year's resolution, Jesus gets forgotten. I think there's a lesson for us in these studies. Don't leave today telling yourself, I just need to think more about heaven this week. Just think, 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 think. That's, that's not what it's saying. And what the studies show us is that you need to set really specific goals that you can achieve. Say to yourself, I'm going to start reading the book of Matthew in the Bible every day this week at 7 a.m. Be really specific. I'm going to pray every night at dinner time. Being specific will help you. Paul just doesn't tell us, okay, be content in Jesus and just feel the feels. He says, no, actively seek after Jesus. Actively seek the things above. Secondly, if you're not in a house group, now is a fantastic time for you to join one. Invest your time in a group that will help you set your heart and mind on things above. The Bible tells us over and over again, we need community. We need other Christians that can encourage us, that can help us, and that can correct us when we start following the things of the world again. And in that group, you might have the really cool privilege of being that to somebody else. That's amazing. We have one or two groups starting this month. Trust God and sign up for one today. Everyone in those groups is going to be new, just like you are, so you'll all be on the same page, and it's going to be amazing. So those are both great practical steps, and I got one more for you. The last one is to pray and ask God for the desire for the things above. Sometimes in our lives, we hit hard patches where God seems really far away. 
He doesn't feel close to us. Or, you know, sometimes even the things of the world seem better. And God tells us to pray and ask him to make us desire him more. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, he says, seek me and you will find me. It's an activity. You have to seek him first. We should pray all of the time and ask God to make us desire the things above. No other prayer request give God, gives God more joy than asking God for more of God, right? That's what he wants us to be doing. King David sums it up really well in Psalm 37. He says this, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your desire is God, he's more than happy to give you more of him. He wants to give you more of him. And I believe there are some of you in this room that have spent your whole lives chasing the things of this world, and you're starting to realize that that endless pursuit never really makes you happy. Chasing after promotion after promotion has left you stressed and exhausted. Or maybe you actually got the job you wanted and you realized you hate it. You've chased a relationship and that person hasn't been able to make you happy. You finally got that special gift at Christmas you've been waiting for and you already don't even remember what it was, right? The good news is you don't have to chase those things anymore. We have an opportunity every single day to choose to seek something better. Today, you can choose to pursue something that will give you real joy and real peace in your life. You can believe that God sent his son Jesus to this earth to die for your sins. He came to set you free from the tomb that you've been trapped in that you didn't even know was there. Paul is telling us that if you believe in Jesus and trust him as your savior, he will become your new life. Every wrong thing you've ever done, all that sin is forgiven. It's gone. And when you die someday, you too will get to appear with Jesus in glory. And you get to go home with him to heaven in paradise forever. That's amazing news. Jesus just says, believe in me, follow me, and I'll give you a new life. In fact, let's just have everybody close your eyes, bow your heads just for a minute, just for a quick moment. If I'm talking to you right now, if you feel that stirring inside of you, I'm going to ask you to do something in a minute. Now is the time to believe in Jesus and receive his gift. And if you've never done that before, as a way to draw a line in the sand, I'm going to ask you to stand up wherever you are. Don't worry about everybody else. No one's looking at you. They all have their eyes closed. This is your moment between you and Jesus to say, yes, Jesus. I'm done chasing the things of this world that leave me empty. I know that you are so much better than those things, and I want to follow you instead. If that's where you're at right now, if that's what you're feeling, wherever you are in this room, I want you just to boldly stand up. Draw that line in the sand and stand up. Go ahead. If you just need today to say, God, I'm done chasing these things. I'm done feeling empty. I need you. I need something better. Stand up. Now is the time. Give you like five more seconds. Okay, I don't see anybody in this service. You can open your eyes. You know, God is so good. As we enter a new year in 2023, God is so good. And if you set your heart and your mind on him and chase after him, he is going to do amazing things in your life. If you trust him and you seek after him and follow him where he wants to lead you. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for the chance to be here this morning. I thank you for the word from Paul that there are so many things above that are so good that can fill us in ways that the world never could that can give us joy and peace and hope and freedom 
and that can give us purpose, Lord, that you have a plan for us, that you want to use us for your kingdom, Lord. I just ask for every single person in this room that they would resolve to seek after you. They would learn about who you are, they would follow after you, and that you would be glorified in their lives, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.